tell you a little bit about my procedure when it came to television as a kid. I was pretty obsessed, and I don't think anyone in my family would tell you otherwise, with sitcoms and cartoons back in the 80s and 70s. I was not, I guess, the normal standard kid who just watched his normal shows. I planned what I was going to watch early on, like it was some sort of military operation. When the fall preview would come out for TV Guide, I would buy it and sit there circling and underlining what I was going to watch. And this extended to the Saturday morning previews that would come out as well. So I would know exactly when each show was going to air for the first time, and I would plan accordingly. So if I saw a comedy that caught my fancy, I would circle it in the TV Guide, write out a calendar, and be ready to watch it. And I would have a whole process. I would have to reserve the television for watching it. I would want certain foods. Sometimes we had a VCR and I was able to record, but other times either the VCR was broken or we didn't have one. This went on for years with me, even up till high school. I remember, in fact, one time I was on a sports team in high school, and this was my freshman year. And it was the weekend that Saturday morning cartoons were premiering. And at the same time, there was an event that I was supposed to participate in. I had already bought the Saturday morning preview and had decided which ones I was going to watch. I was getting pretty old at this point, but I was still very excited about this. And I remember as we got closer to the event, debating which I should do. I've made an obligation to the team to participate, but at the same time, I had a tradition. Now, I guess you know from coming to this site which one won. I will always choose to stay loyal to my traditions. I stayed home, but I didn't make up an excuse. I told my coach, point blank, I can't come because I need to watch Saturday morning cartoons. He just about flipped his lid, but I stood my ground, and for the next four years, I never heard the end of it. I guess if you're going to commit to a lifestyle, you better commit pretty early and follow through with it. This has been the pattern of my life. On today's show, we're going to talk about one of those shows that I'm pretty sure I underlined back in 1985, Mr. Belvedere. We're going to talk about its cast, its origins, its ratings, and its legacy. Metagirl is back with an illuminating top five list, and we have a very special treat this week. Jonathan has landed an interview with Marsha Owens herself, Eileen Grath, and it's a great interview where we learn some information about Belvedere and what she's been working on since the show ended. We got a lot of information to cover, so without further ado, let's start the show.
The TV show Mr. Belvedere started in 1985, but the history of Mr. Belvedere himself stretches back almost 40 years to 1947, when Gwen Davenport released the novel Belvedere. The novel did well, but it wouldn't become a household name until the following year when it was turned into a movie called Sitting Pretty, which had Clifton Webb portraying Mr. Belvedere. The movie's plot is kind of similar to the sitcom plot. It's a comedy. It's a story of a family who hires a man sight unseen to babysit their children. Now, Mr. Belvedere's name is Lynn. That's his first name. His full name is Lynn Aloysius Belvedere. And so when they see the name, they think, oh, it's going to be a, a woman who's going to come to babysit our children. Humorously enough, Mr. Belvedere shows up, and he's an older British man, and he's haughty. And, of course, the father dislikes him immediately, but we all learn important lessons about how we could all learn a lot from one another. Belvedere quickly wins over the children, but, of course, just like in the sitcom, his attitude annoys the father. There's an interesting twist in the movie. There's a couple of delicious misunderstandings that results in the neighbors starting to spread scandalous rumors about Mr. Belvedere and the mother of the family, who was played by Maureen O'Hara. Eventually, the father asks Mr. Belvedere to leave, and it turns out that Mr. Belvedere the whole time has a ulterior motive for doing all his work. He is writing a tell-all book in which he talks about the scandals of a small town. The movie was released on March 10, 1948, and was a hit. It was so well-liked that Clifton Webb was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role of Lynn Belvedere. The character proved so popular that... Webb was brought back to reprise his role in two more movies. Mr. Belvedere Goes to College and Mr. Belvedere Rings the Bell. In Belvedere Goes to College, the name says it all. Mr. Belvedere needs a degree, so he goes to college. And in Mr. Belvedere Rings the Bell, which is the final movie, he lies about his age so that he could live in a senior citizen home. So you get him in a young environment and an old environment. And those would be the only movies made about Mr. Belvedere. That's not to say that there was a 40-year drought of Belvedere-less entertainment in the United States. In 1959, on Playhouse 90, the Silver Whistle, which was what Mr. Belvedere Rings the Bell is based on, was broadcast on television. Yet, Hollywood didn't give up on Mr. Belvedere. They attempted to make a television series out of this movie as early as 1950, and actually made three pilots for it during the 50s and 60s. Most notably, a 1965 version that starred Victor Buono, Sadly, or maybe happily for fans of the show, none of those efforts ever caught on. Five, four, three, two, one. There are some men whose mustaches have more character than they do, but not our top five. These guys have both style and stash. So get ready, retro fans. These are the top five best mustache TV men of the 1980s. At number five is Alex Karras, who played George Papadopoulos on Webster, which ran from 1983 to 1989. His mustache embodied the 80s TV dad. Number four is the feature of this week's Retroist podcast, Mr. Belvedere, starring Christopher Hewitt, which ran from 1985 to 1990. His mustache was so dapper and perfectly groomed that it deserved color commentary from Bob Uecker. Number three is Ted Lang, who played bartender Isaac Washington on The Love Boat from 1977 to 1986. Isaac was very calm and cool, just like his mustache. At number two is Wilfred Brimley, who played Gus Witherspoon on Our House, which had a short run from 1986 to 1988. The thick, 
old-school western, rough-around-the-edges mustache perfectly suits the wearer's personality, but for some reason, it makes me want to test my blood sugar. And the number one best mustache TV man of the 1980s is... You guessed it, Tom Selleck, who played Thomas Magnum on Magnum P.I. from 1980 to 1988. Selleck's mustache is iconic, a mustache among mustaches. And fortunately for Magnum, who was often swimming around in the Pacific, it doubled as a flotation device. And there you have it, the Retroist's Top 5 Best Mustache TV Men of the 1980s. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. So 1985 rolls around, and the network has finally caught lightning in a bottle. They had cast Christopher Hewitt in the role of Mr. Belvedere for a half-hour sitcom that would air on ABC. The show was very similar to earlier Belvedere incarnations in that it featured a middle-class family who would hire an English butler or nanny to help them in their day-to-day lives. And, of course, lessons would be learned from both sides. In this instance, the family, the Owenses, lived in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, which was a suburb of Pittsburgh. They bring in Mr. Belvedere as their butler, and instantly there's problems between him and the father of the family, George, who was played by Bob Euchre. At the start of the show, Euchre played a sports writer, but would later go on to play a sportscaster. George's wife was named Marcia, who was played by Eileen Graff. Eileen is a special guest on The Retroist today, and you're going to hear a little from her in a little bit. She starts out in the show attending law school and eventually goes on to become an attorney on the show. Rounding out the cast is the oldest son, Kevin, who's played by Rob Stone, who at the start of the show is a senior in high school, but later you see him go to college. Their daughter, Heather, who is a freshman in high school, who you see grow older. And one of my favorite characters when I was a kid, Wesley, who was played by Bryce Beckham. Wesley is in elementary school at the time and is often the foil for Mr. Belvedere. If you watch the show, you probably know that many of the plots in the show revolve around Mr. Belvedere's and Wesley's close yet adversarial relationship. Wesley is a bit of an instigator, and he meets his match with Mr. Belvedere, who is smarter than him, but also has a bit of a naughty streak in him. The plots of the show often revolve around just regular family situations, arguments with neighbors, trying to get better jobs, school problems. But there were a couple of very noteworthy episodes. One of the earliest portrayals of a character with AIDS happened on Mr. Belvedere. This involved one of Wesley's classmates contracting the AIDS virus from a transfusion. And Wesley, instead of going one way with the help of Mr. Belvedere, of course, befriends this young boy and helps him to fit in with the other classmates. In another episode that I've talked about on the site, Wesley is actually molested, and it's up to him to decide to save another kid who might get molested, and it's a pretty powerful episode. Will Wesley have the strength to do the right thing? Yes, and of course he gets his strength through his mentor, Mr. Belvedere, who has taught him that it's more important to do the right thing than the easy thing. At the end of each episode, there's kind of a tie-in to earlier Mr. Belvedere works, especially the first movie, but it's not apparent if you were just watching the show and didn't know about the movies, because at the end of each episode, Mr. Belvedere would write in his journal, talking about his day in the Owens house, what lessons were learned, all sorts of information, which you would see used effectively in another series, Doogie Howser. Now, you can almost imagine Mr. Belvedere, after helping the Owens through their problems, moving on and publishing a book from that journal, which I thought would have been a great finale. We'll return after these messages. He's the head of the house and happier for it. Let the good times roll. 
Mr. Belvedere, today at 5.30 on Fox 5. Hey, kids, get your free Mr. Belvedere fun kit. The Mr. Belvedere fun kit. You get an official certificate, an ID card, postcards, an iron-on transfer, a book cover, a newsletter, even a special surprise on your birthday from Mr. Belvedere. Oh, boy, how do we get a fun kit? Just mail a postcard with your name, address, birth date, and year to Mr. Belvedere fun kit. P.O. Box 990, Hollywood, California, 90078. The show had some solid writing, but what's a show without great actors? And Mr. Belvedere had some really talented people associated with it. Let's start out by talking about the heart of the show, Mr. Belvedere himself, who was played by Christopher Michael Hewitt. Hewitt was born in Worthing, Sussex, England on April 5, 1922. His father was an English army officer, and his mother was from Ireland. He made his acting debut at age 7 in a Dublin stage production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and at 16, he joined the Royal Air Force. He would leave the Air Force in 1940 to pursue acting full-time. He then joined the Oxford Repertory Company and made his West End Theatre debut in 1943. He would stay in England for a little while before making the jump across the pond to America. When he came to America, he appeared in several Broadway musicals, including My Fair Lady, Keen, Sleuth, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, and many more. In 1960, he would go on to direct the Broadway review from A to Z. Now, while his heart was in the theatre, he also did some film work. Most famously, he was the effeminate stage director Roger Debris in Mel Brooks's 1968 classic, The Producers. He did some small roles on television, and then in 1983, he took the role of Mr. Rourke's sidekick in the final season of Fantasy Island. After that, he would land the role that he's probably most famous for, Lynn Aloysius Belvedere. He played that role from 1985 to 1990, and worked only occasionally after that. He would appear in the as a guest in two shows after that, the NBC teen sitcom Saved by the Bell Ripoff, California Dreams, and later would actually revive the Mr. Belvedere character for a cameo appearance on the Fox series Ned and Stacy in 1997, which fueled rumors of a Mr. Belvedere return. Sadly, that never happened, and in 2001... Hewitt died of complications from diabetes. He was 79. Next on the Belvedere roster is America's uncle, Mr. Bob Euchre. Bob Euchre did not get his start in acting. He started as a baseball player in his hometown of Milwaukee. He signed a professional contract with the Milwaukee Braves in 1956 and made his major league debut as a catcher for that club in 1962. Now, Bob was never a great hitter, but he was a great defensive player. And when he finished his major league career, he had a fielding percentage of 981. After finishing baseball in 1967, he went on to a broadcasting career. He began calling play-by-play in 1971, where he became known for his wry humor. He made some appearances on The Tonight Show, got some acting gigs. Then, of course, in 1985, he was chosen to play George on Mr. Belvedere. Bob has since gone on to do amazing things. He did some stuff with wrestling in the late 80s. He's done tons of commercials, and if you have to remember him for anything outside of Mr. Belvedere, it should just be for his part as Harry Doyle in the Major League movies. Next to the Belvedere clan is Kevin Owens, who was played by Rob Stone. Now, Rob Stone was born on September 22, 1962 in Dallas, Texas. He started acting 
in Dallas and doing a lot of theater at the age of 13. When he got to college, he went to the University of Southern California, and he acted in several plays at USC. There he met his agent and started doing small television roles on things like Facts of Life, Silver Spoons, and V. He was also on a great after-school special called Ace Hits the Big Time, which has one of the best dance fight sequences you're ever going to see on television. Stone's big break was getting the role of Kevin on Mr. Belvedere, and he did a great job as an older brother who was slightly confused. He's a pretty good actor, and oddly enough, after the show ended, he didn't do much work. He did some guest spots on Matlock, and then an unaired TV pilot for Revenge of the Nerds that never went anywhere. There is this rumor that Stone is actually Marilyn Manson, and I don't know how that rumor got started. And maybe there's a similar look when Manson doesn't have his makeup on, but they are in fact two different people. Next up is Heather Owens. Heather Owens was played by Tracy Wells. In her early career, Tracy had a couple of small parts in television and movies. She had a brief cameo in Gremlins and was in an episode of Silver Spoons. She was even in a CBS School Break special, the episode No Means No. But her big break was as the role of Heather on Mr. Belvedere. After Mr. Belvedere ended, she landed a couple of roles, most notably in Drag Strip Girl. After that, she apparently stopped working to raise her family. And according to her latest bio, her and her family currently reside in the Los Angeles area. Next up is the youngest member of the Owens clan, Wesley. Wesley was played by Bryce Beckham. Bryce was born on February 11, 1976 in Long Beach, California. He, like many young actors, began work in school plays and did a lot of voice work on radio commercials initially. He then landed a role on the television show Alice. After that, his next stop was Mr. Belvedere. In 1990, when the show was canceled, Beckham, of course, had to figure out how to get more work, which is always a struggle for a young actor. He seems to have found his niche lately and is doing a lot of stage acting in the Los Angeles area with the Namaste Theater Company. He also has done such unusual projects as Deliverance the Musical. And on his MySpace page, you can see that he's a talented cartoonist as well. So even though he's not working as a professional actor on television right now, he does seem to have a lot of other interests and continues to work. Last, but certainly not least, is the star of our podcast and probably the most qualified television thespian on the show, Eileen Graff. Eileen was born in Brooklyn, New York on February 28, 1949. She began her professional career very early as a background singer and commercial actress while she was still in high school in Queens Village. Then she moved on to Ithaca College and graduated in 1970. There, her career took off, and she worked on Broadway and television. From Broadway, her credits include Promises, Promises, Grease, and I Love My Wife. On television, she was on a couple of stellar shows before landing on Mr. Belvedere. Barnaby Jones, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, Three's Company, and even St. Elsewhere. Then, in 1985, she was cast opposite Bob Euchre's character George as Marsha Owens in the sitcom Mr. Belvedere. While performing in the musical Grease, she met and married composer Ben Lanzarone, and they have one daughter, Nikki, who was born in 1983. She's currently working, and we're about to find out about that work, because we have a retroist exclusive. That's right. Jonathan recently had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Miss Graff. So sit back and enjoy this amazing interview. Hey there all you retroists, Jonathan's here once again here back this week, and this week we have a very special guest with you, um, well-versed television, Broadway, books, CDs, you name it, we have Eileen Graff with us here, you may know her as Marsha Owens from 
Mr. Belvedere, the, uh, I guess, the cult classic TV show now. <laughs> Welcome with talking with us. Hi, Jonathan. Um, you know, you chuckle at that, but you'd be surprised the kind of following that Mr. Belvedere has all over the web now, and uh, especially in syndication. You know, I'm, I am surprised, and my daughter keeps telling me, why are you still surprised? <laughs> I, say, I don't know, because it was just our life. And, I mean, it's not that it was no big deal, but it was like your job. And we went, and we had a great time, and it was fabulous, and then it was over. And then when um, people get all excited about Mr. Belvedere and the song and the DVDs coming out and all of this stuff, I just find it really charming. Well, you know, I guess let's just start right with that, too. Like you said, you just go to work, and it's one of those things where you're working with a great cast. Of course, you know, um, I'm based out of Wisconsin, so Bob Euchre. Everybody knows Bob Euchre. You had uh, Christopher himself, you know, Mr. Belvedere. Mm -hmm. um, yourself was part of the show. You had Bryce. You had Rob Stone, who played Kevin Owens. Mm -hmm. um, so you had, a, you had a great cast, a great ensemble. Now, uh, I guess, uh, you know, back in 1985, having it uh, uh, start off then, did you have any indication that it was going to run for as long as it did? Yes and no. Um, we sort of had a feeling when we did our pilot, we all had a, a really nice buzz. I'd done a lot of pilots up to that point and never got the same feeling that I got from doing the Mr. Belvedere pilot. And Bob Euchre, well, you're, you're a local boy, so you know, he's like magic. He's just got magic dust all over him. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, you know, we may be together for a little while. It, it felt really good. And then our, our, we started getting nervous during our run because we didn't get early pickups. We didn't get full season pickups. We, we had a rocky road during our run in our relationship with the network. Um, it wasn't personal or anything. It's just business. It's like, well, we'll give you an order for 13, and then, okay, you can do two more. Well, then you can do one more. And we rarely got a full season's order of episodes ahead of time, so there was a little bit of nervousness about that. But when all was said and done, um, it was just a wonderful amount of time to be working, and uh, it happened at a great time in my life. And it, it was just a golden time. Right, and you know, and running for 117 shows, I mean, that is a feat, especially with today's sitcoms, because, you know, I myself, I have to say that I feel that a lot of today's sitcoms, they just don't have that magic, and, you know, you're lucky if it lasts 10 episodes, you mm -hmm. know, so 117, you know, you're a granddaddy at that point in today's society. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny that you should say it, uh, say that, um, I am not a name dropper, but I was at a party and I got to meet George Lopez, who is like, what a doll. What a, <laughs> what a great guy. And we were, you know, talking about being on shows and whatever. And, and I said, well, you know, our show wasn't successful like your show. He said, stop right there. He said, you were on for more than 100 episodes, right? I said, yeah. He said, how many shows can say that? He said, that's a real milestone, and it's something you should be very proud of. And I said, God, you know, you're right. You're right. Um, it didn't run for 10 years. It didn't run for 20 years. But it, we, we went 117, and I think that that says something about um, our viewership and the loyalty of, of our viewers. And uh, it is, according to Mr. Lopez, and something to be proud of. 
Definitely, you know, it, it is a big feat. I mean, especially when you're you're looking back. I mean, that's a big breadth of episodes. And, uh, you know, I guess running through a couple of the different episodes before we move on to all the other things you're involved with, is there any uh, any one episode or any one really fond memory that, you know, to this day, it's just one of those things you've taken away with it and, you know, it's just always going to stay true to you? Well, there are two episodes that I really, really loved. One was in our way at the very beginning, we were one of the first shows to talk about AIDS ever on TV, and it was really radical and shocking for a sitcom to deal with anything that serious, but our, um, somebody very, very close to our production um, had lost um, a child to AIDS, and it was really important to everybody that we do this and we get this right. So it was it was a milestone in, in sitcom land um, to deal with something like, you know, that serious, that honestly, and it's something that I'm really glad we did. Um, and, excuse me, on the opposite side, in terms of just having plain fun, I loved our Robert Goulet episode <laughs> where <laughs> George was a lounge singer and, and I got to sing with Robert Goulet on stage. You know, that was, it was just pure fun from day one, and now that Mr. Goulet is gone, it's a, it's a really wonderful memory that I have. Um, you know, and, and that really leads me right into, you know, other things you've done. Um, you know, being able to sing with him, of course, which is always just very fun. He always seemed like a very fun person. He was. And, um, you know, that brings me to other things. I mean, you're a very well accomplished, you know, in Broadway and music, and you even have a Grammy-nominated CD, which is uh, the Broadway Lullabies, yeah. I guess. Um, uh, how did you really get into that? And, you know, I really do love the concept of the Lullaby CD because I myself am a big Broadway fan. And, oh. um, you know, and being a father, I, I, I really enjoy it. So oh, I, 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 why don't you enlighten some of the listeners on that? Well, um, it had its genesis when our daughter was a baby. And I, you know, you sing your, you sing your little ones to sleep. And I would just sing Broadway show tunes because that was my background. You know, I did Broadway shows before I started doing television. And years later, my husband and I said, you know, we need to do something with this because these songs are gorgeous and they lend themselves to real lullabies. Let's see what we can do with it. And so he's a, my husband, Ben Lanzaroni, is a composer and an arranger. And we just um, took some of our favorite show tunes that we thought would work as lullabies, and he did, did these beautiful arrangements, and um, we recorded the CD, and then we were honored to be nominated for a Grammy for it, so it was very, very cool. Because it was just a labor of love. It was to share our parenting experience with other, with other parents and babies, and to, and to let people know that, well, you're a Broadway fan, but most people aren't, to let them know that there are beautiful, beautiful songs that... Um, can be interpreted many beautiful ways. Yeah, and, and the one thing that I really love about the uh, the whole idea of the CD is, you know, you have all these great songs that people aren't familiar with, and then you wind them down with instrumental versions as well. So it's kind of reinforcing it at the same time, winding down the children. Well, that, we tried really hard to do that because I remember very well what it was like trying to get a little one down. And um, so we started with, like, the... I mean, none of them are big in terms of production, but like the the, the most elaborate 
would be the first song, and then each one we tried to do a little less, a little less, a little less, and as you said, until we're just down to instrumentals. And we thought that would be really sweet, um, almost like <laughs> lullaby karaoke, <Okay. laughs> so that mom or dad could sing along if they wanted to. And so many people tell me that they love the way, as you did, that they just love the transition from the vocals into the instrumentals. And, and your daughter actually, uh, you know, if people are paying attention, that you can actually hear her singing on it as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, she was really little, and we had some stuff of her recorded. Now she's a, a professional musical theater performer in New York, so it's it's just so cool to hear her little voice and remember, you know, when she was little, and we would just go and have fun and record just so we would remember what she sounded like. <laughs> now, you know, moving from, you know, music, um, you actually are a co-author as well with, um, you know, two other women as well, um, you know, about motherhood and uh, what the other mother should know. Now, this is really a topic I should let my wife talk to you about, but, um, you know, I, I love the idea of having something where it's something witty, it's something for, um, you know, my wife is really big into this, where, you know, mothers network back and forth mm -hmm. and they share tips. Um, what, how did that really come about and what made you think, you know what, let's all get together and do this? Well, one day Donna Rosenstein, who's a casting director in Hollywood, um, and, and an old, old family friend of mine, not an old, old, but a long-time family friend of mine, um, we were out uh, eating hamburgers someplace, and we were talking about how um, uh, if you have a class party or something coming up, you really have to order things in advance because you never know if you're going to be able to get them. And... And I didn't know that, and I said, who, who knows that you have to do stuff like that? And Donna says, well, the other mothers know. And we both said, oh, my gosh, that could be a book. We could share all of these inside tips that the other mothers who are so much hipper at mother, mothering than we are, you know, we show business girls, we came to this party late and met so many fabulous women along the way who have all these great tips. So um, it took a few years, and it took a while to find the right uh our right third collaborator, Michelle Gendelman, who is a, actually a TV sitcom writer and um, a wonderful, uh, just a wonderful writer, um, to give it the voice that we wanted. Um, and it just kind of came together. And it, again, it's just, it was so exciting to have an idea. Jonathan, you know, you get an idea and then you see it happen. And process is so gratifying. Um, and our book, What the Other Mothers Know, it's in paper, and it's, it's a real book from a real publishing <laughs> company, and um, it's really, it's exciting, and it's, it's wonderful to have accomplished something that you set out to do, whatever it is. Right, and you know, and like you said, you cover a lot of different things that the other mothers know. I mean, my wife does that to me all the time. She'll be, like, "Did you know if you do this and this and that?" And I'm like, "I had no clue." And you know, now to have a book about this, you know, it's definitely something that I think you know every parent, whether you're a mother or not, it's going to benefit you just in general, um, in, you. in in helping out your, you know, raising your children. And uh, you know, it, you know, yourself, you're a parent. You know, it's it's a juggling act. I know I'm new at it all the time, and I'm just trying to figure it out too. Well, and I agree with you totally. And what we wanted to do in the book was to keep it light and to keep it funny and to make everybody feel that they're not alone, that you are not the first person who um, dressed the baby in too many clothes and the baby's sweating and crying and you don't know what's wrong. You know, everybody's done, everybody's done something ridiculous um, 
and everybody's got good ideas, and we all understand. And we wanted moms and dads to be able to laugh and laugh with themselves and say, oh, my gosh, I, this is hilarious. And, and I think that when you have a sense of humor as a parent, it just makes it so much easier. Definitely. Now, um, you know, with all that shared experience, you know, um, you know, we, we skipped a lot of uh, everything else that you do in terms of, you know, Broadway and television. And, you know, your television resume, you know, goes on and on from a lot of different shows you've been participating on, you know, even just guest appearances, um, even recent things like Castle. Um, you know, and you also have a ton of feature films and also Broadway, like you said, with Grease, I Love My Wife, you know, so you have a great background in that. Uh, is there anything currently that you're working on now that uh, you'd like to share with everybody? Well, I'm, I'm just trying to do as much singing as I possibly can. I just love to sing. I started as a singer. Um, I have a very musical family. My dad was a professional singer, and um, I just, I think I love to sing more than anything. So I've been booking my, I have a, uh, like a cabaret show that I do, and I'm actually going to be doing my show here in Los Angeles for two nights, September 14th and 15th at the Magic Castle, which is a, an amazing venue. Everybody who's a magician in the United States and around the world knows about the Magic Castle. Um, but they've got a, a wonderful performance space, and they've started to bring singers in and to do cabaret performances, and it's it's really very nice. It's a beautiful room, and I'm so excited to be going in there to do my show. I can only imagine to be in the Magic Castle. I've seen so much about it, revved so much about it. I have friends that are magicians and performing artists. I, I would personally love to go there. And, oh, uh, well, I, if, you, I, I if you're in L.A. in September on the 14th and 15th, <laughs> let me know and you can be my guest at the Magic Castle. Oh, you know, I might have to take you up on that just because that's one of those things where for years I just keep hearing about how great it is and, uh, you know, to actually step foot in there and, you know, and you're putting on a show. So you're entertaining and I can, I can guarantee that it's going to be a fun time it's going to be a wonderful night and you know it's a members only club um so it's very exclusive but if you come to the cabaret come to the cabaret if you come to the cabaret then you have you don't have to be a member and you have access to the castle so you can see all the magic shows and uh they have a beaut they have a couple of close-up magic rooms with uh, i mean the best the best people in the country come by and work out their stuff at the Magic Castle, work out their shows, perform their shows. So it's really, it's so fun, and I'm, I'm honored. You know, they, this is the 100th anniversary of the concept of the Magic Castle, and um, I was really honored when they asked me to do my show as part of the 100th anniversary celebration. So I'm very excited. Great career, continuing to sing. Um, you know, I, I guess you've done it all. Uh, you know, I, I mean, you're doing everything and you're continuing to work, which is always just, you know, a joy being able to do what you love to do. Um, if there is anybody out there uh, that is listening to our show, you know, and they grew up, they love watching Mr. Belvedere. Of course, you know, many people, I've heard this many times, so they've always said, she reminds me of my mom. Yeah. So, you know, I do get that a lot. Um, <laughs> is there anything that you would want to put out there for any of our listeners that is looking to jump into sitcoms, into television, um, you, know, you know, in such a hard market? Is there any one tip that you could give them? I just would be prepared. I think if you want to act, I would say go to acting school, learn, get as much technique as you possibly can. Be really, really good at what you do. If you want to write, 
go to go to the University of Iowa, you know, just get into a great writing program and learn, 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 because when the door opens for your little opportunity, you want to be ready and you want to deliver the goods. And if you're excellent at what you do, you stand a much better chance um, at success or at, at getting a job than you would if you're only kind of good at what you do. It's, a, it's interesting how many doors will open. People always find a way into a meeting or to whatever. But the thing is, is to be really good at what you do, really prepared, really get your technique down so that when you do have a chance to show what you can do, you do it great. That's very good advice. I couldn't agree any more on that. So, um, you know, I, I guess I just have to say, you know, I'm pretty starstruck just because I, I loved Mr. Belvedere growing up. <laughs> so, you know, I do have to say, you know, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. You know, I I think of that theme song, you know, went back when shows actually had theme songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a lost art in itself, I believe. Um, you know, it, it's uh, one of those things where, you know, it's uh, I think you're going to be around for a very long time in everybody's hearts, especially with all the DVDs getting released of, you know, the episodes and the complete series and, yeah, and all of out. your work. So yep. if anybody would like to pick up your CD, your books, or to find out more about everything you've done, where could they actually, uh, you know, visit that? Um, just go to my website, um, EileenGraff.com, I-L-E-N-E-G-R-A-F. F.com and uh, I've got links to whatever you might need to be linked to. Thank you once again for your time, and it was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna cross my fingers on maybe being able to uh, toggle getting out to that magic castle. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to meeting you, Jonathan. So, all you retros, this is Jonathan signing off. I'd like to thank Eileen Graff once again for stopping in and talking with all of you. Thanks to Jonathan and Miss Graff for that great interview. For more information about Eileen Graff, and I think. Her URL bears repeating. It's www.eileengraff.com. I wish I was in the Los Angeles area because I would definitely be checking out that show at the Magic Castle. As Jonathan mentioned in the interview, the theme song to Mr. Belvedere is timeless and one of the greatest examples of 1980s theme songs. The song that you heard during the show's full run was written by Judy Hart Angelo and Gary Portnoy. They had previously written the theme songs to Cheers and Punky Brewster. The show's theme song was performed by, do you know? Give you a second to think about it. It was Leon Redbone, the famous ragtime singer. The original theme song was 55 seconds long, but for syndicated reruns, they cut it down so that they could put more commercials into the show. And that was a 30-second version. There was actually an end theme for the song, too. And there were three different versions of that one. At the end of season one and two, there was an instrumental version of the theme song used as an ending. In season three, there was a Dixieland rendition. And in season four through six, there was a jazzier rendition. The show was a critical success. It only won one Emmy, but it was nominated for several Young Artist Awards for its talented cast. But of course, awards aren't everything. It's really all about the ratings. And Mr. Belvedere was never a huge ratings getter, but it had a solid fan base. In fact, it never finished in the top 30 shows in any of its six seasons. In 1987, the show was canceled, and due to fan outcry, and don't say it never helps, the show was brought back and premiered its fourth season in October as opposed to September of that year. In late 1989, the show ceased being made, and no episodes were made for the rest of the season. Then the show moved from Friday to Saturday night, which caused a steep decline in ratings. 
People speculated as to whether the show had been canceled or not, but ABC was not very forthcoming. Then finally, in the summer of 1990, they aired the final two episodes of Mr. Belvedere. It was a two-parter where Mr. Belvedere falls in love and marries a woman and moves to Africa. And I imagine hooking up with a family there and learning lessons and changing lives. Mr. Belvedere went into syndication and has been seen on many channels. It was even in daytime syndication during its original run. A big problem had been its lack of DVD release. But then, on March 17th of this year, Season 1 and 2 of the show were released by Shout Factory, under license from 20th Century Fox, and they have promised that on September 8th, just a couple of weeks away, they will be releasing Season 3. The Season 1 and 2 set include interviews with Bob Euchre, Eileen Graff, Rob Stone, and Bryce Beckham, and a real treasure, a sketch from Saturday Night Live with Tom Hanks entitled The Guy Who Played Mr. Belvedere Fan Club, which is classic SNL and it cracks me up every time I see it. It touches close to home on the obsessiveness of television fans. The new season three is supposed to have six audio commentaries from the cast, which is great. And it was confirmed by Bryce Beckham recently that Tracy Wells, who had been absent on the last set of DVDs, will be on this set. So for Belvedere fans everywhere, you can rejoice, because finally, all the members of the Owens clan will be heard. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at retroist.com. Thanks to Jonathan and Eileen Graff for a great interview. Remember, you can drop by EileenGraff.com to find out where Miss Graff is appearing and to purchase her books and music. Thanks to Metagirl for the top five list. If you have an idea for the show, make sure you email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. The Retroist is on Twitter and at Facebook. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.